Välkommen till Storytel-podden Special. Här ägnar vi ett helt avsnitt åt ett författarskap. Idag träffar vi den internationella succéförfattaren som skrivit 20 böcker om Jack Reacher. Varsågoda, Lee Child. Yeah, welcome, Lee Child. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. I mean, do I call you Lee Child or do I call you? Call Lee? me Lee. That's uh, that's who I am when I'm working. Oh, yeah. so that's your persona when you're working, uh-huh. like on a tour or something. Yeah, well, it's pretty much who I am all the time now. I mean, um, you know, this. I'm very interested in this whole question about names because. You know, I have a so-called real name, but mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? Yeah. It, you know, it was given to me by people that I didn't know at the time, and then when I did get to know them, I didn't like them very much. And I've worked for, uh, gosh, a long forty-three years. I've worked in showbiz of various types, and uh, I must have used, I think, six separate identities for different mm-hmm. projects at different mm-hmm. times. And so to me, a name is something that you should give yourself, really, not something that somebody else should give you. Yeah. I think we should all give ourselves new names. <laughs> um, I like that idea. Yeah. Maybe we should. The woman who does the technical work on my website, you know, she grew up under one name and she was in a marriage that turned out quite unhappy and she got divorced and so on. And part of her her self-therapy she made up a completely new name she never liked her old name and she made up a completely new one and and that's now her name Mm -hmm. and i think we should all do that you know when you're 18 or 21 or whatever just um decide if you want a new name and Mm. go for it so so how did you come up with lee child because i think that's you know like the ultimate hollywood star name (laughs) (laughs) it was uh a long time ago this is uh, must be 1976 I was in the uh, States with my wife, and um, we were on a train that was quite crowded, and so we weren't sitting together, I was sitting next to some other guy, and he started talking to me, and um, detected from my accent that I was not American, and uh, he asked me where I was from, and I said, I'm from Britain, and then he, with a bit of a non-secretary, he said, oh, I've got a European car. (laughs) and uh, I said oh really and back then in the 70s Renault of France sold cars in America they don't anymore but they did then and what we in Europe called the Renault 5 you know which is the little hatchback uh, that was marketed in America as a le car to give it a kind of you know Parisian sort of chic But this guy mispronounced it. I said, uh, oh, really? What car have you got? And he said, I've got Lee car. (laughs) And so forever afterward, between me and my wife, it was a word joke. (laughs) It was Lee this, Lee that. Uh, And then when our daughter was born, she was initially Lee baby. And then as she grew up, she became Lee child. (laughs) So it seemed to me like a kind of, uh, you know, it was an in-joke, it was a family joke, but it was a sweet memory of mine, you know, from my daughter when she was little. And it's a super cool name. It I works mean, well, yeah. yeah. You know, the other great thing on about it... On the cover it, of the book, it looks... looks yeah. great on the cover of the yeah. book. It's easily memorable because, mm. you know, this is all about word of mouth. You know, you're, this is a podcast. This is, um, this is about audiobooks. All we do is say words mm. and hear words. And names are very important in this mm-hmm. business. If you hear an author... Somebody recommends an author... 
it helps if you can remember their name, mm, obviously. Yeah. And certain names are hard to say, hard to hear, hard mm. to remember. Child, I think, is is an easy word to say. It's easy to hear. And yeah. for most people, at least, it has a kind of warm connotation. Mm. Most people <laughs> like children. It somehow sticks in their mm. mind as something that is, uh, you know, at least they don't forget it. Yeah. Well, so now you have written 20 books yeah. about Jack Reacher. How many will there be? Do you have any idea? You know, in a very real way, that's up to the reader. Yeah. Um, because it becomes a sort of, you know, at the beginning, obviously, it's a financial contract where you, yeah. you, you have a publisher and you've got to deliver in order to make your living. But then it very quickly becomes an emotional contract with the readers who read the exactly. books. Yeah. And I feel... You know, obviously, if you have a financial obligation, you have to stick to it. But equally, I think if you have an emotional obligation, you have to stick to that too. And there are people out there who love Reacher and who are eagerly awaiting the next book. Yeah. And if you've got that kind of um, anticipation coming from the audience, I think there is a kind of emotional imperative to fulfill it. And so as long as people want them, I think I'll keep writing them. Yeah. But 20 books in less than 20 years, that's that's a good pace. Do you, do yeah, you, are you know, very disciplined? I, I am disciplined, yeah. you know, because this is, as I said before, you know, it's, yeah. it's great, but it's, it's a job and you've got to be disciplined. You, I don't think anybody would get anything done without mm. discipline. If we sat around in some sort of vague arty way waiting for the muse yeah. to strike you know would nobody would ever get anything done so in a way yeah there's discipline involved but compared to a lot of jobs you know this is not pressure you know a book mm. a year is not a big deal mm. um the first half of my career was mostly in live television yeah. where you can mm. have a deadline you know instant you, you can have a deadline of a minute yeah uh, five minutes is a luxury so you know a deadline of a year is yeah. is no problem at all so what's your routine during the day do you work for like five hours and then eat lunch or do you have any any specific well i i start from the proposition that nothing of value is ever achieved in the morning <laughs> so that's I, a good rule i think <laughs> yeah, so i i don't do anything until the afternoon yeah and uh, yeah you know five hours is interesting mm. you mentioned that i think that five hours is about the maximum quality time that you can do. I mean, obviously, you can work longer than five hours, you can work 12 hours, you can work around the clock, mm. but the the quality will fall off as you get yeah. tired to the point where maybe you're not even really noticing it. But when you go back to look at it the next day, you see that it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So you would scrap it and, and rewrite it. So uh, five hours is... It's pretty dead on. Yeah, that's what I would do typically. Um, and then you just hit the wall just a little <laughs> bit and it makes it inefficient to carry on. So yeah. you would pick it up the next day. Mm. Jack Reacher, your your creation. Uh, how do you, do you think he's evolved or changed over those years that you wrote about him? I mean... Has he gone softer? Is he more more of something? Or That's another great question because 
one of the big points I think of series fiction is that you don't want him to change. Uh, the reader likes him as he is, and the reader returns out of a sense of comfort and familiarity and almost safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the thing that we've got to bear in mind here is that people are investing not so much the money because books are really pretty cheap now, uh, but they're investing time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're investing however many hours it takes to get through that story, mm-hmm. which they can never get back. You know, mm-hmm. once two days of your life have gone, you'll never get it back. So they're they're a little bit kind of wary about. They're cautious. You know, mm-hmm. how are they going to invest that couple of days? And, and you want to give them a safe proposition, and they want the same that they've enjoyed before. Obviously, they want a new story and they want a new circumstance and so on. But fundamentally, they want the familiar old reacher. That's the whole point of series fiction, in my opinion. Mm. And so I try very hard to make him not change. But inevitably, of course, the world changes and I change. And, um, you know, that old Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, a man cannot jump in the same river twice (laughs) because it's new water and it's a new man. Mm -hmm. And so everything does change a little bit. And so, yeah, Richard changes. Has he got softer? I think not really. I think he's got maybe a little bit calmer at certain times, a little bit more Mm -hmm. reflective. Maybe it's just me. I'm not afraid anymore to make him slightly more vulnerable or or take the emphasis away from the physical onto the cerebral sometimes. Uh, But the fundamental proposition is my dad is Irish, you know, and they have a reputation for saying sort of weird and contradictory things. And I remember... (laughs) I remember watching him trying to choose a book, and I said, you know, Dad, what are the criteria? What are you looking for? And he said, I want the same but different. (laughs) And I think that's really what you've got to offer people, Mm, the same but different. Mm, absolutely would you consider him a dear friend now after all these years um i think it's actually important that he's not my friend (laughs) i think that that way lies weakness in a series that you i think you can see certain series where the author has gotten too close to the character too Mm. uh friendly too kind of admiring of the character yeah sometimes they fall in love with the character Mm. and at that point the series becomes generally speaking, too sugary and too perfect Mm. to be convincing. I think it's important that the author, and this is the rule of thumb that I try and work to, the author should like the character less than the reader is going to like him. That way, (laughs) How do you achieve that? I mean, uh, you just have to be very rigorous about putting in the negatives, you know, Mm. keep the flaws, keep the unattractive parts, keep the things that people disapprove of, Mm. Um, you know, never, ever let yourself think, will people like this? Mm. Will people approve of this? You can't think that way. You've just got to do what you think would really happen. And I put in stuff all the time that I, I think people are not going to like because I think that's essential to keep the character honest. Yeah. Mm. So you don't have any problems putting him, him in you know difficult situations or making making him take hard decisions or stuff like that. That's fine. No, and you know sometimes getting those decisions wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I, if there's a scenario where he could do A or B, and I can see to, to myself, well, A people will sort of approve of that would be the normal thing to do that would be the laudable thing to do uh 
I'll say, no, let's let him do B, you know, yeah. let him make a mistake, let him do the wrong thing. And I think that kind of warts and all humanity is what keeps uh, a series character somehow properly human yeah. and not a sort of cardboard cutout. True. Where did you find the inspiration for him from the very beginning? I think, you know, the only sensible answer to that is is a sort of dumb one, really, which is any <laughs> author will will make the character out of things that he's already read. Yeah. That's what I love about authors is they're not really authors. <laughs> you know, authors are not primarily authors. They're primarily readers. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my case, I write a book a year, but I read hundreds of books a year. Yeah. I'm much more of a reader than I am a writer. Mm -hmm. And so when I started writing, and again, this is another good thing about being an author. Not only can you, but you kind of should start later in your life. Um, you know, it's a great second career. Start yeah. when you've done something else first. And by that time, you've read thousands and thousands of books and you have a feeling for what you like and what you don't and what works and what doesn't work. And somehow from all of that emerges the character that you'd like to write about. Yeah. And um, in my case, it was it was Reacher, yeah. You never found out afterwards that you accidentally happened to steal a plot from someone else <laughs> that you read? Um, oh, I steal as much as I possibly can. You know, it's very fascinating discussion, really. Mm. How many plots are there, really? Yeah, exactly. um, you know, various people in Hollywood at various times, so there's only seven stories or there's only five stories. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's really only two stories. And um, you're going to do a version of one or the other all the time. And uh, I think that, you know, it's not so much stealing, it's it's we all swim in the same human river. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we like to tell, we like to listen to the same stories and uh, variations of the same stories. And there's, the movies do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We all compete. I mean, I don't want to make it sound sort of vicious or bitter, but we're we're all entertaining people. And we're so essentially, we're all swimming in the same current. And we're bound to influence each other. And yeah. so I think that you can use variations on what you've read before. And there are certain archetypal characters that, that emerge, and Reacher is certainly one of them. You know, Reacher is an archetype that has been around for thousands of years. We know that. We've, we see him all the time. Mm -hmm. um, medieval sagas from Europe, Scandinavian folk tales, Anglo-Saxon poems, um, Greek myths, uh, mm. You know, the, the same things talk about stealing, you know, those same kind of archetypal myths were co-opted by religion, you know, savior stories are essentially the same thing, the knight errant, the mysterious lonely figure who shows mm. up in the nick of time and <laughs> solves the problem and then rides <laughs> off, that's Reacher right there. Yeah. So what are those two stories? <laughs> well, you see, I think back to, and this is very interesting from the audio book perspective, in my opinion, that uh, you know nobody knows when we invented language, but we can sort of guess maybe 200,000 years ago. And then nobody really knows when we invented fiction, you know, when we modified language to use it uh, for fiction. But again, we can guess, let's say, 100,000 years ago. Mm. And so... For a hundred thousand years, we've been listening, literally listening to stories, not reading them. Mm. The reading thing is very, very recent. Mm. Uh, you know, for normal people like you and me, 
learning to read and reading off a page is pretty recent, you know, 150 years maybe, 200 years maximum mm -hmm. for, for normal folk. So um, it's very, very much an, an oral tradition, uh, storytelling. Yeah. So that um, you've got to take into account what, is that, what does that mean for us? And uh, I think voice in, in storytelling is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And when writers talk about voice, they typically mean, I don't know what, you know, some vague stylistic mm. type of thing. But to me, a voice is literally a voice. That yeah. um, if I was uh, an ancient person, you know, thousands of years ago, I wouldn't be reading. I'd be sitting in a, a smoky cave mm. listening to somebody telling me a story. Mm. And the bestseller of the time would be the guy that had 10 people listening instead of five people listening. Yeah. So what stories would he be telling in that cave? And more importantly, why would he be telling them? Mm. Because back then, 100,000 years ago, we didn't do anything for fun. There was no concept really of fun. There was no concept of leisure time. Um, everything had some kind of survival purpose. Now, what could possibly be the survival purpose of telling a story mm. well it's got to be to encourage you to console you to somehow empower you to make you feel stronger yeah. make you feel more likely to survive so i think those original two stories you're sitting there in the cave and maybe there is you know a smoky fire burning in the entrance to ward off the predators and the first story is and one of the greatest lines in all of fiction that we still see it now in in a serial killer novel or something like that. Mm. One of the most basic human lines, there's something out there. <laughs> That's story number one, sitting in the cave, scared, listening to the howling mm. predators and the concept of there's something out there. And then the second story is somebody leaves the cave and comes back and tells people what lies beyond the hill, mm. that there's, uh, you know, there's mm. more out there. And maybe then they... They tell stories about how they were chased by a saber-toothed tiger, but they escaped. And there, that's an empowering story that yeah. gives people courage, it gives them bravery. They think, yeah, maybe we can survive peril. Maybe we can survive danger. And then maybe 10,000 years later, the story evolves to, he didn't just escape from the saber-toothed tiger, but he killed the <laughs> saber-toothed tiger. And there's a hero right there. Yeah. That's, that's the birth of Jack Reacher 100,000 years ago, the guy who killed the saber-toothed tiger <laughs> and survived. So those are the two stories. There's something out there and what lies beyond the hill. How do you know so much about the military police? I think that's very interesting because it's like... To me, it's like just uh, fiction. Mm. I know it's not, but <laughs> in my world, it's like, you know, the movies and books and everything. Do you do a lot of research or well, how do you know a, so much? To a certain extent, uh, yeah, you know, I don't do really specific research, but I'm a big reader. Like I said, I'm yeah. a curious person. I, I, I love to know details about things. I love to know how things work. And uh, I, you know, see a lot of movies, read a lot of nonfiction talk to a lot of people a lot of it i just make up and that is the you know the 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 marvelous thing about storytelling that mm -hmm. if you if you say something with conviction people believe it mm -hmm. uh, that's the basic transaction of storytelling that and especially with crime 
books or thriller books, they, you know, you, you state something, the reader always kind of gives you one free pass, you know, they buy into one odd thing and then mm. they give you sort of one freebie and then you've got to uh, keep it going in a plausible fashion. <laughs> um, so you just use a lot of self-confidence and um, a lot of what I write is, I'm sure, wrong. But uh, they, as long as it sounds convincing, people believe it. Yeah. So you, you're not getting hunted by those detailed fascists <laughs> who wants everything right? You, you know, you do, and uh, but it's odd what they focus on. Mm. Um, you know, guns are a big deal. That oh. uh, you know, everybody thinks they 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 know more about guns than everybody else. And mm -hmm. if you put a detail about a gun, and you'll get people arguing. But then. I'm fortunate, really, in that I came from the world of television, which has a mass audience where mm. uh, people argue with everything. Um, mm. You know, on television, you can say, today is Tuesday, therefore tomorrow is Wednesday. Mm. And you'll have 10,000 people write in saying, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> People argue with everything. So to a certain extent, you expect that. And mm. to a certain extent, you learn to ignore it. Mm. And also, the other thing is you just learn that you can never, ever get it right. Uh, you, you know, you will always kind of miss something. Mm. There was one book I remember, I think it was the fourth book in, in English, it's called The Visitor. And they were in the northwest of America. And uh, Reacher and the woman had a long drive at night to get from one place to the next. And I remember thinking, you know, and this was hundreds and hundreds of miles. And I remember thinking, oh, wait a minute, I better have them fill up with gas because otherwise somebody's going to write in and say, you can't go 500 miles on one tank of gas. So I thought, all right, I've spotted the problem ahead of time, so I will, I will not make that mistake. So sure, I wrote a scene where they were about to cross the Columbia River coming out of Washington State into Oregon, which is, you know, a silvery moon and this big bridge, and it was very atmospheric. And I wrote this little scene where they stopped at a gas station. The woman went in to use the bathroom. Reacher pumped the gas. She came out. They swapped over. He drove for a bit because she'd been driving before, and off they went. And so I thought, great, I've taken care of that problem and written a very nice little scene. And then I started to get the letters. There's no self-service gasoline in Washington State. You have to have it pumped for you by the gas station attendant. Mm. So, you know, you, you can't, you'll always get something wrong. So in a certain sense, you shouldn't worry about it. No. Yeah. I think rather a, a good story than a true story. That's my life mm. motto <laughs> and everyone has it in my family. And, you know, we naturally kind of uh, compress stories and massage them a little bit, and, you know, mm, make yeah. them simpler, more, more obvious. And, uh, you know, if, if you've heard a story where it's a friend of a friend or something like that, you say... Happened, you yeah. know. First of all, you miss out the second level, and it's your friend, and then sooner or later exactly. it happened to you. And mm. because it's about the story, not really about the details. Mm. Exactly. Uh, and some people just don't get that. Some people, you know, are sticklers for the yeah. exact truth, <laughs> yes. which is boring. You know, it's, it doesn't really matter who it happened to. The interest is in the story. Yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> Indeed. Would you say that, I mean, let's talk about this Nordic noir and American thrillers and uh, British crime. And can you see something 
I mean, that connects the, the American tradition in crime and the British tradition and the Scandinavian. That sort of puts them apart. But, I think yeah. that, uh, yeah, you could, it's easier to see the differences between mm, them. And maybe, I think yeah. that it, it tends to, I don't know what you would call it, it's some kind of environmental response or some kind of element of, of self-restraint. But, you know, an American crime thriller will generally be some huge, high-paced, flashy thing with, uh, you know, all kinds of action and, and big drama mm. and um, high stakes and big circumstances. And then you get the British, which is much more internal, I think. Because mm. if you look at Britain as a nation compared to America, it's small, it's densely populated, there isn't much physical freedom to roam. Uh, I think the geography mm. is um, tighter. And mm. therefore, you know, you look at the classic English crime writers, um, Ruth Rendell, for instance, or or um, Ian Rankin, mm. I think especially. You know, Ian mm. writes about a very tiny area of Edinburgh. Uh, mm. You know, typically his plots are very physically confined. And therefore, same with Ruth Rendell, you know, parts of... Apart, you know, this this the Sussex series with mm. Wexford, but then the ones set in North London, you know, it can be just a couple of streets, and therefore the drama is much more internal, very psychological, very mm. confined, almost claustrophobic. And then I think you, if you look at the Scandinavian fiction, it is rather self-consciously undramatic. You know, they don't want the American thing, you know, with the big no, flashy sure. plots, with the um, the wild high stakes and so on. They just want a rather... Uh, quiet, uh, considered approach to it. And um, each one of them has has its own distinctive features. And what interests me is how kind of popular uh, they can be outside of their own country mm. for, for various mm. different reasons. I mean, Scandinavian crime fiction is huge in Britain and, um, you know, a good, solid, respectable cult in America. And American crime fiction does reasonably well in in britain i don't know how it how it does in scandinavia but we all we sort of look for the other nations yeah, for a bit of variety yeah. i guess one last question out of these 20 books about jack richard do you have one favorite my normal answer when people say what's your favorite book i always say the next one yeah mm. because mm. you do have this feeling that even though i'm very happy with with many of the books and you know certainly as a matter of personal pride i wouldn't put one out that i i thought was substandard but you always have this feeling they're not quite as good as they could have been and you know something <laughs> failed or something went wrong with them And so you think about the next one, you have not screwed it up yet. Mm. <laughs> it still could be perfect. It could yeah. be the one. Uh, but if you if you confine me to ones that I've already written, I think uh, there's a couple that I think are, are really pretty good. And I, I like the one in English, it's called Gone Tomorrow. It opens mm. with an apparent suicide bomber on the subway in New York. Mm. And it opens really well and then continues Fine, yeah, I was I was pretty happy with that one. Nice. So don't miss that one. <laughs> don't miss the the latest books. Um, the latest in English is Make Me, and the latest one we have in Swedish so far is Personal. Mm -hmm. Can you just say a few words about that book? About Personal, yeah, it's um, 
It shakes it up a little bit for Reacher because normally Reacher's habitat is, you know, the back roads of America, the dusty yeah. little towns and the, the uh, no-consequence places. But like I said earlier on, you want to do the same but different. And the different part I wanted for this for personal was to make it a little more glamorous, you know, make it a little more international. So the basic story is uh, somebody tries to assassinate the president of France with a rifle shot from a very, very long way away. This mm. is a an expert sniper, obviously. And um, he takes a shot from almost a mile away, and the French president is only saved because he's standing behind a bulletproof screen, you know, like politicians yeah. do mm. these days. And so the worry is that how many people in the world could make that shot? And the intelligence communities really figure it out and think there's only about five of them who could plausibly, realistically attempt that shot. And one of those five is an American who has just gotten out of jail. And who put him in jail 15 years ago? Jack Reacher. Mm. So they try, they get hold of Reacher and say, look, there's a one in five possibility it could be that guy that you arrested 15 years ago. We want you to find him again. And so that's how the adventure starts. And then it turns out to be not quite what we think it is, so that the title personal becomes um, important to the story in a way. Mm, sounds very exciting. Mm -hmm. Le Child, thank you very much for coming and talk to us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank, thank you. you.